I didn't mean to introduce a new hymn to you, but I'm glad I did, if you don't know it. And I want to go over the words with you so that you don't uh, lose them. I think it's a good prayer to take with you, one that you can look up easily on your phone or your computer and print out this prayer by Anna Waring. You may want to look at other hymns by Anna Waring, a great poet. <clears throat> but uh, look, at this, look at this prayer. Father, I know that all my life is portioned out for me. The changes that are sure to come, I do not fear to see. I ask Thee for a present mind intent on pleasing Thee. I would not have the restless will that hurries to and fro, seeking for some great thing to do or a secret thing to know. I would be treated as a child and guided where I go. I ask Thee for the daily strength to none that ask denied, a mind to blend with outward life while keeping at Thy side, content to fill a little space if Thou be glorified. In service which Thy will appoints, there are no bonds for me. <clears throat> My secret heart is taught the truth that makes Thy children free. A life of self-renouncing love is one of liberty. I uh, remember singing that line as a young man in the pastorate and being arrested by it. That one line, content to fill a little space if thou be glorified. Many of us have spent our lives seeking for some great thing to do or secret thing to know instead of being treated as a child and guided where we go, content to fill just a little space. I don't care what space it is. I don't care how big it is. I don't care how small and insignificant it is, Lord, if only you are glorified. Well, it's a great prayer to have on your desk and in front of you all the time, and it's a great prayer for us to have in our minds as we look at these middle verses of chapter 12 having to do with God training us, training us, discipling us, disciplining us. <clears throat> we, should, we could make up a word, enduring, causing us to endure, persevering us so that we finish well as He told us we're going to. Remember back in chapter 10, verse 39? We are not of those who shrink back. We are of this tradition, of this history that we find in chapter 11, of those who keep their eyes focused on Christ, and Christ enables them to endure. So here he's saying, God not only will enable you, He is, he is, uh, he is putting you through your workout. He is building up your spiritual muscles so that you will finish and finish well. Let's begin reading in chapter 12, and uh, let's go back up to verse 3, and we'll read to verse 17. <clears throat> Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? 
My son, this is from Proverbs 3, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness." For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness with which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Let's pray together. Lord, open our eyes, please. To behold wonderfully powerful and encouraging things from this portion of your word. We do not want to be those among those who faint. We do not want to be those who have such a short view of eternity, such a short view of life that we yield to temptation, to sexual immorality as it's mentioned here, or materialism as it's also mentioned at the end of our passage. We pray that you would fix our eyes on Jesus, on the finish line, that we would live well for you every day, content to fill a little space if only you are glorified. No one else ever notices us. We never get what everybody else has. If you are glorified, that's all we desire. Please, O Lord, give us the faithfulness to finish and finish well. We pray it in Jesus' name, God's men said, amen. This isn't the way I planned to begin, but I thought of it as I was reading through this passage. Again, a number of years ago when our children were very, very small, we, for our uh, vacations, used to go out to a place in the the country outside of of St. Louis, about an hour and a half away in the foothills of the Ozarks. And it was really country, which is kind of like what I grew up in. I felt very at home there. And uh, this place uh, had a swimming pool in the middle of town. We, where we stayed was even out from that so-called little town. And uh, we, we had a swimming pool. Our kids were excited to go to the swimming pool. So we, would go to the, we went to the swimming pool the first day, and there was a little kid's pool, you know, only about a foot deep. And and uh, the, our kids could toddle around in that. And we quickly figured out that the people of the town used the swimming pool 
as uh, their babysitting, their daycare. So those of you members of a country club here probably have the same thing. That's the way people use country clubs. They drop their kids off at the pool and somebody else takes care of them all day. And uh, so this, this place may have been in the country, but they weren't ahead of the local country clubs. They, they dropped their kids off and then the, and the, the lifeguards did their best to keep them from dying all day long. It was like Lord of the Flies. The kids had just completely taken over the place. It was total chaos. And we were the only adults in that compound uh, other than the barely, you know, 16-year-old lifeguards. So we're we're in the baby pool with our children with the gate, which meant nothing. (coughs) Neither did it mean anything that it was supposedly a baby pool. There were big kids in there, there were little, and, and uh, it was just pandemonium. They were stealing our kids' toys or knocking them down. So I had enough of it, finally, and I stood up in the middle of the baby pool, and I said, enough! And everybody stopped in the whole pool area. They'd never, I guess they'd never heard of adult voice before. And uh, they stopped, and I said, they're going to have some rules here. No kid under such and such a height is going to be right here. Get out. Close the gate. If you leave, close the gate behind you. We're going to share toys. We're going to pass. We're the only ones that have toys. We're going to share toys. We're going to to have toys five minutes. We're going to have, then we'll swap, okay? Well, my wife was mortified. My son was cowering in the corner. But the kids responded to it. The kids obeyed. The kids started closing the gate. The kids started sharing the toys. And they would even, given, even got to the point with, is time up yet? I'm ready to share my toy. They were so hungry for an attentive adult, so hungry for some degree of order, which brought some safety. And it's what, it's what this writer is saying our Father does for us. And yet, when we hear the word discipline, just like our children many times hear it, oh, I don't like discipline because it means I'm in trouble or it's denial or it's, it's putting me through my paces or it's, 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 uh, it's suffering of some kind. But do you hear already, just in the way we've read the passage, how often he says, The Father loves you. He's treating you as sons whom He loves. What I want us to see in this passage is that while we often take trials and discipline as as something negative and as an excuse to quit, the Father wants us to hear in this passage the trials, the challenges, the discipline that you are undergoing of any kind, I am using it, even if you've gotten yourself into it, even if you've deserved it, I, because I'm your father and because I love you, I'm using it to train you to look like the person you are, which is like Christ. I am using it to perfect you, to strengthen you to get you ready to live in intimate fellowship with me into all of eternity. 
So the first thing I want you to see in verse 3 is the path. That discipline or these trials uh, uh, show you that there is a path that God is taking you down. And that path has, is already well-worn by your Savior, by God's unique, only begotten Son. That path has been well-worn. And you, when you are encountering trials, when you're going through discipline, even though He was not disciplined for sin, He suffered for us that He might, be, might take our sin from us and might also identify with us. So that everything that you experience, trials, sufferings, setbacks, you may know far from there being punishments of you, far from there being something that indicates to you that God doesn't love you, that God doesn't have good purposes for you, that God is trying to trip you up and make life miserable for you. On the contrary, it is to confirm to you that you are following in the footsteps of Christ. You are following Him. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I want you to look at another passage. Just turn to the right a little bit into 1 Peter chapter 1. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. Now, Peter is having to write to Christians similar encouragements to what uh, the author of Hebrews is writing to these Roman Christians because they are Romans. They are in Rome, and they're beginning to encounter uh, uh, persecution for their faith. And they're starting to ask, I wonder if we've, what we've signed up for. If this is the truth and if this is the way that we're to walk in it, and you said it's supposed to be blessing, but here we're getting, we're getting thrown out of our jobs. We're losing our livelihoods. Our, our families are being broken up. We're put in, being put in prison. Some of us are being killed. Does this tell us, do these trials tell us that we're on the wrong course? In chapter 1, verse 6 of 1 Peter says, In this, that is, in your suffering, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. You rejoice in this knowledge that you have an eternal salvation, and even these trials can't undermine that. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with joy, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Look at chapter 2, verse 21 of the same book. <clears throat> For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in His steps. So suffering, trials, difficulties, setbacks, discipline, all prove to us, if Christ is our Savior, prove to us ultimately that God is conforming us to the life of Christ 
even as he's taking us through the pattern that Christ followed while he was on earth. It's something like this. Every uh, spring in Augusta, we had to clean up for the masters. And the major thing, the major enemy we had to fight was mold. Now, maybe there's a problem with mold and mildew here, but, but everything was moldy and mildew in, in uh, the tropical climate of Augusta. And uh, so <clears throat> I had a power washer, and uh, I had a, it's a super power washer. It could reach to the second story of my home. I had this long wand on it, and I could, I could put it up at the, at the top, and I, I loved power washing. <laughs> and, uh, and I loved killing mold. One of my friends called Clorox the scent of angels. <clears throat> And uh, so I had a new gizmo on my uh, power washer where I could, I could put a big vat of Clorox in it and I could drop this hose down on it and then when I would push the button, it would, it would create a vacuum and it would suck this Clorox up through there and it would shoot it up to the top and then I could release the vacuum and I could spray it off. And I was eager to get this thing going again. It had malfunctioned and I'd gotten it fixed. So I was, I was firing it up there and I knew it wasn't working. Because when it's working, the wind would blow the Clorox back on me and my arms would burn. Because, of course, I didn't wear protective clothing. I, I killed everything on myself, too. So I'm spraying along here and it's not working. And I was so frustrated and aggravated. And, and, uh, and I finally, and finally jimmied it around and I, I was spraying along, big gust of wind. <laughs> doused me with the liquid, and I was on fire. <laughs> I knew it was working. It was an indication. For me, it was a positive indication. That negative feeling was a positive indication that it's working. You're going through trials. You're going through setbacks. You're suffering. You're being disciplined, even for something that, that you really deserve to be disciplined for. And your temptation is to think God is not good. How could He love me and allow this thing to happen? No, on the contrary. You need to feel that pain as an indication of God's good love for you. It's working. You wouldn't have these. If you were an illegitimate child, He would just let you go. He wouldn't have anything to do with you. The pain indicates that He is conforming you to the image of His beloved Son. That's the path you're on. The second thing I want you to see in verse 4, I want you to get perspective on your suffering, on your discipline. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. I think I can say that with almost total confidence in this room. It's true of you and me too. Now, there are other ways we shed blood. It's certainly true that we can suffer. But here, uh, the author is, is just a very reasonable pastoral perspective. It's a fatherly perspective. As bad as this is, it's not as bad as some of these in chapter 11 have experienced. Some of these were sewn up in animal skins. Some of these were sawn in two. Some of these were flogged to death. You haven't had that yet. But even those experiences, experienced by those believers, 
did not convince them that God was not good. Even being burned at the stake did not convince them that God was not good. Because of Christ in them, because of this eternal perspective, they rejoiced at the privilege of suffering for His name. Now, if you, he's saying, if you who have not even resisted to the point of shedding blood are suffering, how much more should you, with, with these lesser experiences, how much more should you be confident that God is good, that God is taking you through this for His good? There was an elder in my first church I pastored whose favorite expression was, what's the worst that could happen? We'd, we would have a, I'd have a problem I was sharing with him, or we'd encounter a problem in the session we were dealing with, and he would, he would rock back and say, what's the worst that could happen? Now, he was a man who was very successful in business, and, and so if you just looked at him from the outside at the stuff he had, you could say, well, easy for you to say, because you've never had much uh, difficulty in your life, but it was, uh, it was much different from that. He was one of ten children. He grew up in abject poverty in St. Louis. Most all of his siblings, or all of his siblings who went to war were killed. His father was an alcoholic. He had to drag him out of the ditch on many occasions. He drank them into poverty. uh, He watched his brother die uh, on a street corner in... St. Louis, as an adult, his own son committed suicide. It was after all of those losses that he could say about every problem that he encountered thereafter, what's the worst that could happen? He had already experienced the worst. He had experienced the loss of his own son. And yet, as he would tell you, God brought him through. God, in the darkest moments of his life, had revealed himself to be good, to intend nothing in his life but good, to shape him as a child, to shape him as a son. If anything, it had convinced him the more of the gospel, because as we read in 1 Peter 1, This miracle, though I can't see him, though life is contrary to what I would would intuit, I love him because he first loved me. The author is saying something similar to us. Most of you, if I scan this room, have lived long enough to be able to say, I've experienced You can say about something, it's the worst thing I've ever experienced in my life. And uh, probably the rest of what you will experience in the rest of your days won't be as bad as that one thing that's in your mind. And it's that, that that you have to camp on. Christ took me through that. Christ gave me perspective on that on the other side And so whatever I encounter today, whatever I encounter for the rest of my life, even if it is worse, I can use this this experience of the faithfulness of God's love even in suffering to realize all of His His purposes for me are good. 
because they're shaping me to his beloved son. We need to know we're on the path. We need perspective. And then we need to know, as I've been saying over and over, we need this proof. I hope I don't have... Oh, yeah. In my notes, it has poof. We don't need to know the word poof. <clears throat> proof. I'm glad I have a proof reader. Verses 5 through 9, he quotes Proverbs 3, 11 to 12, and uh, is saying by this Old Testament quotation, this is the way God has always worked. God has always been shaping sons and daughters. God has always been a good father. He has always intended discipline and trials and reproof to be ways of shepherding his children for their good. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Why? The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. I have a friend who was going through a really, really difficult time uh, on one occasion, and she stood up in a testimony service we had, as Thanksgiving service, and she said, the Bible says the Lord disciplines those He loves. I'm feeling very loved. <laughs> that was a funny expression as you chuckled at it, but it, uh, it's, it's been helpful to me to remember her strategy, which was to repeat that to herself. I don't really feel loved. It's counterintuitive, but I know from Scripture and I know from Christ that this must be true, so I'm going to choose to believe, to camp on what I know to be true, even when it doesn't feel like it is true. There's a sidebar comment I want to make here because um, the author uses what we, you remember your college logic course, a fortiori arguments from something you know is certain, if this is true and we all agree it's true, then how much more true is this? That's the kind of argument he's using here. And um, he starts with, we know, we know our fathers loved us, and we know that the way our fathers disciplined us, speaking as adults, we know that those when they denied us something or when they, when they uh, forced us through an exercise or when they taught us how to work or they forced us to push through the pain to work or when they forced us as coaches to endure, we know that that benefited us. That's not so easily assumed in this culture, is it? It's not so easily assumed that every person has had a father like that. So it's just a sidebar comment for us to be sensitive to this reality in our culture and to, and to seek where we can to be those kinds of spiritual fathers to those around us. To always look for somebody who is behind us in spiritual growth, if not chronologically, and say, how may I mark the trail for them? I met with a 40-year-old man yesterday, and he said, you know, I'm having to realize that there are people I can mentor. You, 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 you uh, older guys remember this transition that occurred somehow 
magically and maybe disturbingly in your life when you went from being a son to a father, when you went from being a follower to a leader. There's no, there's no purgatory of leadership. There's no in-between. You just one day wake up and somebody's following you for better or for worse. And, and let's pray individually that God would enable us to be this kind of foundational argument for somebody else that, well, just as Mr. So-and-so loves me in this way so much that he puts me through my paces or he tells, makes life lessons for me or he pauses to teach me something that he's learned or just as he has, he has encouraged me to endure and not give up, well, that's the way the Father deals with me too. That's the way the Heavenly Father deals with me. We are more and more, at least in my ministry, more and more, less and less can I rely on somebody immediately having a good paradigm for a father from which I can, I can, that I can use as a fulcrum to leverage this kind of, this kind of gracious teaching that, remember your dad? Think about God. Instead, we're having to go directly to the picture of God in Scripture and say, that is what a father is supposed to be, and this God that you are following, that you are worshiping, this is a perfect father. And lest you have difficulty envisioning him as you read in Scripture, then look at Jesus, because Jesus said, I came to reveal to you the father. So some of us are having to build from scratch the image of a father, and there's plenty of material in Scripture directly to show you that your father loves you on all occasions, and everything he does in your life is to prove that you are his son and to make you more like his perfect son. I think I've told the story in some context here already, I don't think in amen, but a man I greatly admired while I was in college named, named John Acuff. He's from uh, Dalton, Georgia, and he grew up in uh, terrible poverty. His parents resented his being born. They, they were already poor, and they didn't expect him, and he was born, and they told him how much they resented him every day. We didn't plan on your being born. You're taking another mouth at the table. We don't have place to feed. And they shuffled him from one family member to another. Nobody wanted him. One day he found himself living in an abandoned car in the middle of a field. He was tossed out by his family members. He was a teenager. And he was living in this car. And there was a Bible in the back seat of that car for some reason. Somebody had left a Bible in that car. He opened it and he... He was absolutely desperate. He's ready to take his own life, really. And he opened that Bible, just let it fall open to where it would, and fell open to Romans 8. You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. You have received a spirit of adoption by which you cry out, Abba, Father. Maybe there was a footnote there or something, and somebody in that Bible translated Abba as Daddy, and so he said, he put that Bible down in his lap, and he looked up to God, and he said, if you'll be my daddy, I won't tell nobody. 
I wouldn't want to embarrass you like I've embarrassed the rest of my family. He said if he heard from God in that word of Scripture, as if God had spoken to him audibly, I want everybody to know I'm your daddy. That's the way I get my glory, by showing them I'm your father. Whatever you're going through, whatever you're going through, it is to prove to you and to give God an opportunity to make a name for himself in showing the world, this is my son, this is my daughter, this is the way I love my children. Fourth thing I want you to see is in verse 10, that suffering has an end. It's punctuated. They disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. It's the point that we could make from uh, many places in Scripture, especially in the Psalms. You look for this next time you're reading in the Psalms, how often the Bible says, discipline ends, suffering ends. Weeping may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. He's turned my mourning into weeping. He's taken my sackcloth and ashes off, and He's replaced it with a spirit of joy. He's given me a wide place to stand. makes a similar statement to that in in, uh, Isaiah chapter 28. You don't need to turn there, but listen to this, Isaiah 28 verse 24. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put it in wheat uh, in rows and barley in its proper place and emmer at this border? For he is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. God is saying, yes, I do plow you for a time. At times I thresh you. But I only do it until you learn. And a time of relief comes. Your suffering will end. There will be punctuations to it, even in this life. But there certainly will be an end to your suffering in that day which is to come. God does not rejoice any more than you do. You you remember those days you, you came home and maybe you felt it yourself or your wife said, I am exhausted. I've been spanking our babies all day long. Maybe it's not politically correct to say anymore, but you've been disciplining your babies all day long. It's exhausting. Every parent despises it. You only do it in order to point them in the way they should go. And when they have done it, you're eager to stop when they turn away from that which is only destroying their little souls or hurting their little bodies. The fifth thing I want you to see in this passage is in verse 11, that discipline... is productive. Discipline is productive. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. What in the world is that? We've we've gotten the idea that God is training us that we can be righteous. We've gotten this idea that all of our difficulties are for the purpose of making us more like Christ. But why does he add peaceful, the peaceful fruit? It's because this pastor is telling us that as we keep our eyes fixed on Christ 
and Christ as the revelation, the proof of God's love for us. If we always have in our focus that no matter what happens to us, these facts never change. God is good and God loves us. Those facts never, ever change. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. It doesn't matter what you're going through, what you're being denied. Those facts that God is good and God loves you never, ever change. So, while you're experiencing the fruit of righteousness, you can be peaceful. You don't have to be resentful. You don't have an excuse for rebellion. Well, if he's going to do that to me, I might as well do whatever I want to. You never have that excuse when it is clearly anchored in your mind and soul. No matter what happens, God is good and God the Father loves me. It's absolutely infallibly sealed to me in the person of Jesus Christ. John Calvin said on one after, well, actually, after he lost a daughter, one of John Calvin's daughters died. <clears throat> and uh, he writes a prayer. Uh, actually, it's a letter, but it's sort of a prayerful thought as he was writing to his friend. Your hand is crushing me, but it is your hand. Father, your hand is crushing me, but oh yes, I can be at peace. It is your hand. That means it's for good, and it's because you love me. Billy Graham has been <clears throat> on our mind this season as we said goodbye to him and celebrated his going to heaven and experiencing his reward his relief in the bosom of Jesus. And Billy Graham had a favorite illustration, and I can't remember if he had actually seen this happen or if he had heard about it, but it occurred during the, the Depression. A man was walking down the street. He had lost his job in the Depression, as so many did, and he was shuffling along hat in hand, dreading to go home and tell his family that he could no longer provide for them. And uh, as he was walking along, he saw a man who did have a job. He was a stonemason. And he was, uh, he was working ever so diligently on a, a little tiny piece of stone, chipping away. You know how those guys do with those sharp hammers, ever so carefully chipping along one edge and then ever so carefully chipping along another, and then on the final edge. And <clears throat> as he watched him, he finally asked him, what in the world are you doing? Why are you just sitting here on the sidewalk chipping away at this rock? Have you lost your mind? Have you lost your job, and you're just trying to piddle away at something? He said, no, I'm a stonemason. He pointed up to the apex of the roof where the roof line came together, a little open spot, and he said, I'm, I'm shaping this stone down here to fit into that place up there. The man in his dejection got the word he needed from the Lord. This 
chiseling, this grinding that I'm experiencing is the master stonemason's work of shaping me down here so that I can fit in up there with him, perfectly conformed to his image. Be encouraged with that, brother.